Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself, your success, and your future today. As the name says, our listeners are business creators. We have our entrepreneurs, small business owners, local business owners. We have the marketing and business coaches, consultants, and mentors. We have those who help others create their businesses. And we have the do-it-yourselfers who like to have your own hands on the levers. If you're one or more of the above, please take a moment, explore episodes, and discover how we help you win at the game of business and marketing at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Also, check us out on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe. Just do a search for Business Creators Radio Show. Fresh content added to your iTunes every single Tuesday, and every five-star rating helps us help helps us help more business creators just like you. Now, today's topic is going to be very exciting, and this is something that I like to do with my own clients and my own uh, people that I work with, and it has to do with finding some of the hidden assets, some of the things that are already in your business or near your business. The taste topic, we're going to call it free money for virtually every business, because that's what it is. It's free money. How to quickly tap and leverage hidden assets most entrepreneurs ignore. To take us down that path, I'm so happy to have with us today Dr. Glenn Livingston. And let me tell you a little bit about him. He's a psychologist whose previous companies have sold more than $30 million in consulting to Fortune 500 firms such as Novartis, American Express, AT&T, Whirlpool, Panasonic, Lipton, Kraft, Bausch & Lomb, and Nabisco. You may have also seen his company's work and or theories in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, the New York Daily News, Crane's New York Business, Bloomberg Radio, ABC or CBS Radio, UPN or WGN-TV, and numerous other high-profile periodicals and shows. For the past 10 years, Dr. Livingston has focused on helping small businesses and entrepreneurs with sustainable growth and marketing strategies. His website is www.coachcertificationalliance.com. He also has a website at www.merchantaccountwizard.com. And if we have a few minutes near the end, we're going to talk a little bit about merchant accounts. We can fit it in. Glenn, welcome aboard. Oh, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to being here. This should be fun. Oh, you bet it will be, and we're going to make sure that we have a great time here. But before we dive in, here's what I like to do. Some of our listeners are just now getting to know you, and we want to help them out a little bit. So I read off your bio, but tell us a little bit more about the journey that you've taken uh, from a personal perspective and how it's brought you to where you are today and how you serve our business creators. Well, you know, I – always considered myself to be a psychologist first and foremost, even though I did all this stuff in business. And I was born in a family of 17 therapists and social workers and counselors. And, um, right. you know, I often joke that something breaks in the house. We could all ask how, how it feels and nobody knows how to fix it. Um, and, and, and so I set out to be a clinical psychologist. I was going to be, a, and, and I was, a marital and family counselor, and I work with um, couples and adolescents and, you know, a lot of suicidal people. And I had heard my dad on the radio, and I was really intrigued with what he was doing when I was a little, little boy. 
my, and my mom said, well, he makes people happy when they're sad. And I said, I want to do that, but why does he do it on the radio? He said, because he can reach a lot more people. And so I wanted to be more than a country doctor, and I wanted to be involved with um, marketing so that I could reach a large number of people, because I was really taken with the impact of psychology. Um, and I really wanted to get into psychoeducation. So, so I wound up marrying a marketer, and um, she was one of the world's best focus group moderators. And um, we, we, you know, she she did her focus groups. I was on on the line for on the way to doing my clinical practice. But along the way, I had been asked to teach a course in graduate school called the Multivariate Modeling of Human Behavior. And basically, what that was was, yeah, okay. So so. I looked at well, what well, well, I was saying, right, right, but tell, tell us what it is. Tell us what it is. Oh, well, well, basically it was the uh, how, how to get the soul into the machine. So we'd be studying things like love and intimacy and happiness, but we wouldn't be asking people directly about it. We would be observing, like we'd get 10 observers in the back of a one-way mirror, and they would be looking at how often does this couple look at each other? And every like five seconds or so, they'd make a tick marker whether they were looking at each other and what, they were, what was their proximity and, you know, were they verbalizing towards each other? And we had all these little things we were observing. And then we would look to predict, you know, how well that couple did together. Or in the case of a mother-infant bond, we would look to predict um, how well those people did in school later on. And I think they even followed them later into life, but I didn't follow those studies beyond that. And... Um, and so I, I looked at what we were, had done in graduate school, and I said to my wife at the time, well, you know, you're doing these big projects for Procter & Gamble, and you're doing these, um, you know, giant studies for Lipton and AT&T, and, and they're all qualitative. You ask, you're asking very soulful questions, coming up with really interesting hypotheses, but don't they want to have some type of numbers on this before – you um, you know, but before they invest fifty million dollars in a branding campaign, and she said absolutely did, or at least some of them did. Interesting that the different corporate cultures from company to company, some of them believe in research, some of them don't, some of them make gut decisions, some of them don't. Right. But <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, it's really interesting. And and so um, I kind of became the back end to what she was doing. I, I would quantify the things that she was doing. And um, then I started developing my own clients that just wanted to do what I did, and we developed some very special protocols. It was, it was um, all about linking people's psychology to purchase interest, and what what were the human needs that were being triggered by the advertising, um, and the specific features and functions of the product, and how could we prove that, and therefore, you know, what what was the emotional mood and tone that we should set for the advertising agency and, you know, how do we brief the creatives and, you know, what should the brand really represent? Um, so I was doing an awful lot of that for many, many years. I made a lot of money doing that. I, I liked the work. I loved the work. I didn't like the lifestyle. So, for example, I had to fly to Tokyo for a one-hour meeting with, you know, like like six hours notice, and I had to be there and back in 36 hours. And that was the kind of thing that would happen. Or um, I remember presenting to the CEO of Bausch & Lomb at the 
end of a year-long million-dollar project, and I had to boil everything down to a half a page, and he looked at it and went, eh. <laughs> and I thought, this is not why I'm in the world. I'm not, I'm not in the world to um, spend a year of my life, get paid a lot of money, and then just have someone go, eh, I, I'm here to make a difference. And so I, um, I tried to switch sides of the industry, which was a drastic mistake. Um, we, we were basically selling intellectual capital, and we decided instead to build a large focus group facility. And we built it on Long Island just before September 11th. Um, but even if it wasn't before September 11th, it wasn't the best idea because it was a totally different, it was a totally different business, um, you know, running a focus group facility as opposed to designing and analyzing studies. And the industry is split in half for those people to understand that. And um, long story short, I lost everything. We, we, that's how I figured out that it was possible to lose millions of dollars when you didn't have millions of dollars, and that was fun. Um, but no, nobody would come to New York after 9-11. And I had actually taken a sabbatical from my clinical practice, so there I was at 40 years old, um, you know, really without a job and, you know, no income and um, $700,000 in debt and um, trying to figure out what I was going to do. So I went I – went, Back and did some more consulting to try to make make up for it, and we did. And um, but I decided I wasn't going to get trapped doing corporate consulting forever. So I started a little publishing company. I started applying the marketing and marketing research techniques that we'd been learning from all the big companies and consulting for with the big companies. Started applying them to my own little publishing business, and I got really successful doing that. I developed a reputation for that. So then I got asked to go speak about it. I started speaking about it. People said, this is too complicated. Can you do it for us? So I developed an advertising agency. Um, I sold that advertising agency, but I wound up with a large following of people that still wanted me to consult for their small businesses, um, like, you know, like 30,000 people or so. And, um, and so I started doing consulting, and then people asked me, how do we consult like you do <laughs> And so I, I built a training program to teach people how to do consulting. Um, and, um, and you know, I, I wound up really basically at this point in my life being a business coach. Um, I, I have my own I, – I also have a best-selling book in weight loss, which is a really weird book where I use all the principles. And, um, you know, I have a business doing that, which is meaningful to me also. But um, – but mostly I'm a I'm a business coach and um you know and that's that's my journey. That's that's how I got to where I am. Wow. I mean I knew when I I knew when I had a chance to check out your bio and uh learn a little bit more about you in the time before we brought you on here on the show today that you were a pretty story gentleman. But it looks like you have and this, I think, is one of your gifts, which you bring to the table here overall, Glenn, is such a broad and wide variety of experience. We've also gone deep at several different points along the journey, which is a very rare combination, I find, in our experts on the Business Creators Radio Show. Uh, they're all fantastic. We're all fantastic. But you come at this from a very, very different angle and the way you look at things. And I think this is a very great gift that you have and something that I'm really looking forward to sharing with our business creators. So um, at least for the time being, what we want to do is we want to tap into that a little bit and help to sure. translate that into helping our business creators uh, find some of those 
hidden assets that a lot of entrepreneurs just don't see. And you being a man who's seen things from so many different perspectives, it goes just naturally that you have a corner on this after a sense. So the first thing I'd like to know is where do most small to medium-sized businesses have money on the table, which they could easily pick up? You know that old phrase, don't leave money on the table. But most of them do. They tend to ignore it. I'll go from um, the simplest and quickest places to pick it up to slightly more complex, but, you know, equally as valuable, if not more valuable places to pick it up. So sure. one thing one thing you can consider is the um, like the transaction costs of moving money around online. Um, most people don't understand most people don't understand their transaction costs, and they just think of it as a small percentage of every transaction. So I'm talking about you know what your credit card processor charges you to move the money from your customer's account to yours, um, also known as a merchant account which is an account provider, and um, there's typically like a quarter to a half a percent per transaction that you can shave off if you match your if you match your business with an underwriter that really understands the industry. The way the merchant account world is structured, people um, they, they they look for they they look for like a very cookie cutter business and like the merchant account banks, their, their primary business is putting 10,000 people who do, you know, 15 or $20,000 a month or less, um, just giving out those accounts all day long. And you'd think that they would want people who, you know, do $400,000 a month or 50,000 or a hundred thousand, but they actually get kind of nervous because there's more risk involved for them. And so they, um, they tend to overcharge. If they're not, if they don't really understand your industry, because they assume that there's more risk that there is, and, and so the bottom line is, like, like let's say you could save a half percent on every transaction. That doesn't sound like a lot, but remember it's a half percent off the top. And so if you're working on a 10% margin, um, you know that's that's going to be five percent of your profit. That's going to that's going to be a really pretty big bump. And you're talking about something that goes on indefinitely. So it's reasonable to calculate a five-year value on that. And when you do that, you recognize that, you know, get someone to take a look at your account and, um, you know, do an analysis and see if they can find you a better provider. And you can probably be hiring an employee or two on the money that you save right away. So that doesn't really require much work. um, It's the kind of thing you don't pay for unless it actually saves money. And um, that's what that's what our merchant account wizard thing is. Um, The. Now I'm going to go to some things that are a little bit more complex, maybe a little more difficult to understand, but equally as valuable, if not more. Um, most businesses I find don't really understand the lifetime value of their customer. So, so when someone buys from you, what is that per- person worth at month one, at month three, at month six, at month 12, at month 60, right? Like what, what is that person worth to you? And the reason that's really important is because most businesses will buy customers. They'll spend money on advertising and they'll calculate the cost per acquisition, but they want to make that back in the first month. And that's great yeah. if you're in an industry where that's really possible. But, but um, if you put things 
into a spreadsheet and you think, well, what percent of my people buy the second product that bought the first product and at what time? And, um, and you kind of take all the factors into consideration and you build a cash flow curve. You can usually see that to maximize profits at month six or month 12, you probably need to go negative in the first couple of months or very often that you'll need to go negative in the first couple of months. But if you're confident in the numbers, then the only reason not to do that is if you don't have the cash. But if you're confident in the numbers, then you should be able to get the cash because you have the history to prove it to a bank or to an investor. Um, right. And so there, there's often there's often a lot of money on the table like that. And I'll, I'll shut up for a second so you can ask me a question. But yeah. Well, actually, I was uh, I was enjoying I was enjoying everything you were saying, and some and you know sometimes it is those little things, and I can understand why some people are nervous to think about things like, uh, you, know, you know, let's look at the merchant account, that, that sort of thing. And I think some of it has to do with the fear that people have is, well, I got approved for this merchant account once, but if I start asking questions, they might find some technicality and shut off my cash flow. Because you hear these horror stories of people having their merchant accounts shut down all of a sudden over nothing. It, yeah, it, it seems like it's over nothing, but actually you're less likely to get a shutdown if you're in contact with them. If you, if they... okay. You know, if you find out who the person is at the merchant account who will assess the risk and, and you ask them, now, what if we start to grow? What, what if we engineer a growth spurt? This is, this is um, we call this the expansion strategy. People don't typically think of their merchant account provider as a partner in their expansion strategy until it's too late. Um, you know, all, all of a sudden you go from 15000 to 150000 one month because you, you plug that last piece of the pipeline and then your merchant account provider calls you and says, I'm sorry, you can't process it, or we're going to hold the money for six months. <laughs> and you had plans for how to pay your vendor. Yeah. Um, and that kind of thing happens because your merchant account provider doesn't know you and doesn't know your business really well. And it's safer for them to go get another typical cookie cutter business than it is for them to work with you. But if, if you're in contact with them, and especially if you've talked to them before about what's your growth pattern, and they want to know things like, what are your customer service procedures? Are, are you are you a company that you know, do you have a customer service chief? Do you do you have procedures? Is there a um, you know is there a training system in place? How fast is your response time? They, they want to know that kind of thing because otherwise they could get a lot of fraud complaints and then they could be on the line for for the money that they're laying out. So um, they're actually taking the risks all alongside you. You just don't know it, and you need to. Um, you need to treat them like a partner and soothe their anxieties all along the way. Um, yeah, so that, that's 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 a big deal. That's a big deal. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, and the, I guess that makes sense. Go, go ahead, go ahead. I, I think I was going to repeat what I'd said before about the industry match being really important. It's it's better to yeah. work with a broker that knows a multitude of underwriters. And, and can ask you the right questions to understand your business and they can match you with an, under, an underwriter that is not going to charge exorbitant rates because they understand your business than to just go to one or two merchant accounts yourself and, you know, pray for approval um, and, and you know, stick with them no matter what because you're scared of what's going to happen. It's, it's, not, it's not really a great way to go about, go about business. Right. Uh, and you have, and I guess going along with this, and I think you may have somewhat answered it, is especially in today's climate, it is so difficult for small businesses to get loans. Uh, I've told my story about this, and so many others 
have said, oh, yeah, that happened to me, too, or, yeah, I know somebody that happened to. Uh, back before the days of Dodd-Frank, back when we were in a different era, I, I mean, my business was a third of the size it is now. It had maybe a third of the cash flow at most. I, my own lifestyle was much less than it was now. Uh, we had far fewer clients, uh, far more debts than every other thing. I would be sitting in my home office, and loan officers from mainstream banks would show up at my door unannounced with pre-completed <laughs> small business loan paperwork. All I had to do was give them the number, wait while they made a phone call to make sure they could clear that number, and sign on the dotted line. I took out two of those loans. Paid them both off on time, never a late payment. Fast forward to 2013. Now we're in a different regulatory era. Uh, you have uh, you have situations where now I go to apply for another loan because I say, you know what, I still got about $15,000 because the, the Great Recession happened. So I did such a great job paying off this $20,000 loan. Let's go for a $15,000, just make it easy on me. Well, you would, th you would think that I was pretty much literally a criminal for even bothering to ask. I mean, I had right, to answer questions right. like, I had to answer questions like, does your business have clients? Do you make money? And things like, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and here's another great one. Now we're talking about a business loan and they're saying, why do you have a student loan? Now this is about the 19th stupid question. So I said, well, the reason I have a student loan is because you, you know, like a lot of people, I went to college and textbooks are really expensive now, but they were just as outrageous back in 1996. So what I did is I took out a student loan to finance the meth lab I used to fund <laughs> the books from the proceeds thereof. Now I was just I was just smarting off, uh, but I got this whole lecture about uh, how I was treading on legal thin ice and everything else. So in light of that being the experience that a lot of people have, and I don't know how well what I'm about to say is going to age because, you know, we, you know at the time that we're doing this interview, uh, we are um, in a situation where there's a lot of change happening in our country. The regulatory environment is changing, but we don't know how much it's going to change. As of right now, it's still basically the same thing. I've, tr I've looked very recently into this again, and it's still the same old nonsense. So when people see this challenge and getting a little bit of money just to get a little bit of a leg up, uh, isn't that going to two two part question, Glenn? Number one, isn't that going to give them pause about do I really want to even fuss with the things at least I know are working, so I know my clients can pay me? And part two is, is there anything I can do to get this money off the table? It's sitting there on the table, but they keep asking me stupid questions when I rightfully ask for it. Well, first of all, I really love that you know the word fuss because um, that that was a yeah. word that my most of my grandmother used. <laughs> Uh, I'm really happy to yeah. hear that word. So, with it's not quite as bad with merchant accounts because it's it's easy to get the um, low level approval, and once you can show a track record of managing low level approval for a month, two months, maybe three months, then they'll jump you up pretty quickly. Um, they, they just need to get comfortable with you. It's, it's not it's not quite the same as like. Like getting a hundred thousand dollars a month of processing approval is not quite the same as taking out a hundred thousand um, dollar business line of credit. It, it's um, you know because there are, there are actual goods being sold, the risk is not really quite as high, and um, 
and the accounts will go along, the underwriters will go along with it. Um, if you, you know, you might, you might need to start at a lower level for a month or two is really what it comes down to. Um, and, you know, if there's, if there's one provider that won't take you, there'll be another one that does. So it's, it's not really as bad as the credit industry as a whole, but, um, you do have to be cognizant of those kind of things. And you have to be cognizant of how you present yourself to the underwriter also. You know, like, right. do you have exaggerated claims on your website? Do you have, um, you know, do you have a substantial looking website? Like, not one of those plain old, and, you know, I use direct response websites and they sell really well, but the merchant account provider is going to look for something that the customers think are substantial and, um, you know, if it looks like a, Site that a college kid put up in his in his spare time while he was smoking weed, then you're not going to do as well as if you have a you know a fancy looking site. And it's not it's not hard to make a nice site these days with WordPress and a theme. Um, so make sure no, you go ahead. No, it's very easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very um, it's very easy. And the piece of advice I was given, uh, the piece of advice I was given is even if your official corporate name is not your DBA. At least own the domain that matches your corporate name and put up some kind of website that references the business you own because half the time the people you're going to deal with when it comes to underwriters of any kind aren't going to even be willing to put forth the effort to say, well, let's look for the actual website they use to promote this thing. I see the company name is uh, is uh, Cat Toys Incorporated, so I'm only going to look at cattoysinc.com. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Even if they don't want to look at it, you want to own that so that someone, one of your competitors, doesn't um, try to take you down with some bad advertising or bad press. So I could tell you nightmare right. stories about that. <laughs> yeah. I can. I can. I can imagine. Um, I knew somebody once who uh, had that happen to them. A competitor decided to come after them, and they said, "Oh well, I see that they actually use this corporate name, so I'm going to buy that and put up a website, and I'm going to go stomp on them." And unfortunately, exactly. it was pretty effective. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. But I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, before I had many of my own businesses, I actually didn't own glennlivingston.com. I do now. Um, and I had a patient who got really angry with me, kind of a crazy kid. And he said he was going to go buy glennlivingston.com and put up a picture of a big – and I'm not going to tell you what the last word was. But uh, but I, I decided that I had I to – I got it. I got it. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you, you want to own your own name. You want to own your own name. Do you want to talk more about – um, Go on. I'm sorry. Talk more about – oh, yeah. I was just going to say very quickly. Yeah, what happened when uh, when they first started making domains available to the general public, uh, they found a lot of famous people, and people would snap up the domains – and then put up a website that would be very, very bad news for that particular famous person. And they say, look, you're going to pay me this money. I'll give you the domain, but you're going to pay this money. Otherwise, this website stays up. Yeah. <laughs> when, when, you, when you are in the online industry and you see what goes on, you, you lose respect for humanity to a certain extent. All you have to go and all you have to do is uh, go on Twitter and look at a political trending topic if you want to lose faith in humanity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a reason. There's a reason I check the news once a day after I've actually accomplished something. But uh, yeah, let's talk more about where we were before. Uh, you know, helping these uh, business creators get the money off the table. Well, um, I'm. 
always surprised, I'm always shocked at how few business owners have actually done a set of interviews with their buyers. Like, you know, send them out a, send them out a note either in the mail or via email that you'd like to do a webinar or you'd like to, um, you know, you'd like to talk to them one on one on the phone for 15, 20 minutes. You're happy to pay them $10 and just ask them, you know, what, what was it that got you to buy the product? What, what was the problem you were struggling with? What else were you looking for? Um, what else was available on the market? Why did you choose our product as compared to theirs? What do you wish our product did that it didn't do? Um, you know, what other need of yours can I meet that we haven't met yet? And I run into so many businesses who get obsessed with, like, optimizing the sales conversion on the front end which is the hardest place to find customers and the hardest place to find money. And optimization usually leads to a point of diminishing returns. Like there's only so far, like in theory you can say, well, I'm going to test version A versus version B and I'm just going to keep on doing that and stair-stepping my way up until I find the perfect letter. But, but in practice, I find that after a few iterations and a few wins, it's really hard to get any better, um, especially on the front end. But if you – talk to the customers, especially the customers who have spent the most money with you. Um, they're going to have needs, and they're going to give you insights into why they gave you money. And when you know why they gave you money, you can emphasize the reasons they gave you money more in your advertising on the front end. And when you find out what their other needs are, you can come up with a product or a service that meets their needs, um, even if that means you have to buy it, even if that means you make a you know strategic joint venture with some other company that's already producing and delivering that, and all of a sudden you realize that the money and work and you know soul that you put into winning the customer and winning their 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 trust that's actually worth something immediately because they have other needs that they want to buy from and um you know so i I would say once you've got a flow of people coming in you've got a passing parade of people that you keep on bringing in get to work building right. out those back-end products and services and yeah yeah it's 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 rare yeah. that companies have actually done enough of that it's rare that that's happened and then along those lines there's usually more value in every transaction in an upsell um, i don't know how much you talk about that i don't want to cover something you've already been covering but no, go right it. after people so right, especially online, right after people buy, um, you know, if, you, if you've ever bought a domain at GoDaddy, do, do you know how many things they present you with that go along with your domain? Gee, you qualify for a free website <laughs> service. It's only only eight dollars a year after this. Um, gee, would you like to round this up for charity? Gee, would you like to, um, you know, would you like to get the email and domain service? Would you want privacy? Do you want? Um, I, I, Everybody should go try to buy a domain from GoDaddy and see if to, you can get to out. To the with point, it. to the point, if you allow me, to the point where sometimes it's a little tricky because a best practice is if you're grabbing a domain because you're thinking about something, but you think your idea is so brilliant that other people are thinking about it, but you want to be first to market in case you decide, you want to grab that domain for one year. So if in a year from now your little uh, flight of fancy hasn't turned into anything, it just dies off, you don't end up with a huge GoDaddy bill. Uh, but what, right. you have to be careful. Sometimes GoDaddy will automatically preset it for you to buy your domain for five years or seven years oh, or whatever it is. It'll just <laughs> automatically make that adjustment. 
Uh, so you got to look at that price point before you click that button. That'll be the clue that they've added like five years to your registration. I mean, your primary domains, the ones you actually market with for the, your core businesses and you know your own personal domain you use to brand your own name for search engines, yeah, for for optimization purposes, you want to own those ones for five or seven years. But uh, but you know, like the ones that come and go one year at a time. But GoDaddy does that. Now, another thing I saw GoDaddy do that was just a little extreme, um, and I and, they, and I saw they quickly backed away from this. Is you know how Glenn, you know, you may a lot of people buy their domains at GoDaddy, but they host with other companies. You know, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. In fact, I recommend. Yep. In fact, I recommend people do that just so that your whole business is under one roof and there's no confusion and you own everything. Well, for a short time, if you went into GoDaddy to update your DNS settings to point that domain to your hosting so your website could go live, they would stop you in the middle of changing your name servers to give you a pitch for their hosting. Oh, wow. They 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 would interrupt you changing your name servers so they could pitch you on your hosting. Meanwhile, you were already there because you already had hosting and you were ready to go with it. They backed off that one pretty quick. But here's the point I want to make. They tried it. If something yep. doesn't work, just back off. Big freaking deal. So yeah, so a few right. people said, oh, come on. I, I already have hosting. I get it, guys, but this is ridiculous. They got some feedback of that variety, and they said, all right, this is a bridge too far. Let's back off on this one. But what if? They had just ignored the opportunity and missed out on a lot of people that said, yeah, you know what? My hosting really sucks. I'm not happy about pointing my website to these people. Let's give this a shot. What if, what if the balance of feedback had been more in, on, on the lines of, wow, thank goodness for letting us know you do hosting too. We like to work with one company. They wouldn't have known that had they not tried. Absolutely, and it might take, it might take nine or ten different trials to find the thing that really works. And so it's right. just one of those things where you, you know, fail fast and, and fail forward. Yeah, That's right. But they, they, they're, pretty, <laughs> they, they're extraordinarily aggressive. I, that's the first time, by the way, that I heard very specific advice about how to manage your domains there without a big bill. Um, that's more or less yeah. what I do. I actually buy them for a year. I put them on auto, auto renewal. And then once a month, I just go in and, and I see, do I want to cancel any of these? And I, I don't get involved with trying to sell them. I don't get involved with, um, you know, with, with you know, transferring them to friends and family. I just, um, I just cancel them, and it's, you know, I, that's why I keep, I keep my, that way I can pay my mortgage and my GoDaddy bill at the same time. Exactly, and this is something I do with some of my top uh, coaching consulting clients is that when they get on a tear going to buy a bunch of domains, I say, look, didn't we just do an exercise where we reduced your GoDaddy bill so it was, so it's finally smaller than your mortgage? Uh, tell me right now exactly your plan for this domain. And 99 out of 100, they don't have one. They just had some whim of fancy. And then they often can't even explain to me why they want the domain. It's like, okay, well, so you can explain it. You don't need it. Buy it if you want, but... I recommend against it. And see, what you do, Glenn, is also pretty smart. Is you just sort of keep your eye on it. Like what I like to do is I hate, and this is, gonna be, this is actually a question I want to throw in real quick about merchant accounts um, before we move on to the next topic. Um, I hate when I uh, do my QuickBooks and such, and I see that there's 19 different charges to GoDaddy for every single one of these little renewals. So like once a month I go in, I, un- I release anything I plan to let go, 
and I just just you know whip out the card, spend a hundred bucks, and renew a bunch of them just so I don't have to think about it for three months, and it feels good. Cool. So my question about merchant accounts is along the same lines. Along the same lines, we get these monthly charges, daily charges, per transaction charges. It feels like I go through five charges just to pass a credit card. So you're asking somebody to calculate how they're going to save half a point on their merchant account. If we want to help people get this money off the table, how do you read through all that to even know how much you're paying? Well, um, the merchant account providers are kind of like the telephone industry. There's a confuse and conquer mentality. Exactly. Um, Yeah. And, And, you know, they know that the opportunity cost of our time as a small business to look through that is ridiculous. And that even, you know, even most bookkeepers are not going to bother doing it. And because people think of it as small potatoes, but it's not really small potatoes in the long run because of the volume and the the length length of time that people have it. So we have people that do that for you. You don't, you don't have to do that. We, you know, send us over a couple of statements. We will look at the analysis. We'll point out exactly where you are overspending fees that you shouldn't have to be charged. You know, some, some accounts will charge you $35 for a charge back when you should be being charged 15 for a charge back. And, um, right. You know, so, sometimes, sometimes they can't even explain what the fee is. <laughs> there's just, there's just, um, it's ridiculous. So we, we work with providers who don't do that and, it's one of the ways we convince people to switch is we show them all the money that they're being burned for that they don't have to be um they don't have to be spending. So um Oh, I see. Yeah. I see. I see. That makes sense. So another lesson is is uh hire a professional who actually knows what they're talking about. Um and again, I I'm gonna re I'm gonna say this very carefully so I put the right message out there. About ten years ago I had this client who had a merchant account and I think um he sold like two CDs. Uh, this is one of the types of folks who would spend more time um, editing their website than promoting it. Uh, you know how that goes, right? And um, and yep. they would keep asking, uh, uh, Anna, can you figure out for me how much I'm paying on my merchant account and how you can save me half a point? I indulged this once and could, for the reasons we just discussed, could not possibly come up with an answer. And after about the third time they asked, they said, no, I'm really not going to look at your merchant account statements and tell you where you can save half a point for two reasons. Number one, I'm not a merchant account provider. You might want to speak with one. And second of all, uh, you've got money all over the table in terms of all these marketing ideas you have that you keep burying in minutia and don't turn into action. So before we talk about uh, saving you half a point on your merchant account, how about let's use the merchant account to make you some money? Right. There's that too. Yeah, I- and most entrepreneurs have what I would call a wall of shame. Actually, I got this from Bill Harrison. This long list of things they could do to make more money that um, they just don't have the time or resources to implement. And so, I mean, so that, that's why we obviously have to do it for people. We can't expect people to have someone staff that's going to do that or to do it for themselves. Um, and, um, yeah, so good point. Yeah. And we're already two-thirds of the way through this. I mean, time is really flying, so uh, we have a couple more things we want to cover here. So let's, um, you know, we're going to pace it up a little bit for, just for our listeners so you know. So next thing we want to know Whatever. is, uh, you know, Glenn, what are, yeah, Glenn, what do you think are some of the common threats to business expansion, which virtually no business is prepared to manage effectively? I think we kind of covered one, that fear of the unknown. What if I, what if I ask a question to trigger something and they shut me down? What are some others? Um. 
most businesses are not prepared for the energy and systems and leadership that's necessary to grow at a fast clip. It's, um, you know, I, I, I learned this the hard way when I, after I was, after I had my very successful publishing business and I started, I started teaching and then everybody asked me to do it for them and I started an advertising agency, got flooded with clients. Like, you know, like a hundred people came in right away. And I had never had a business that grew that quickly. I'd always been a consultant, more or less, who, um, you know, I was selling a million-dollar project or a $100,000 project. And um, so we had five or six customers at a time at the most. And, you know, if you suddenly have all of these clients and not enough capacity to really serve them with quality – and you, don't even, you haven't even really defined what serving them with quality means. Like, um, there's a really good book called The Dollarization Principle. And one of the things I learned in the agency was that we wanted to, um, we needed to dollarize what we did for the clients at each and every step so that they felt like they were making more than the fee that we were charging them. Um, and right. so we came up, you know, came up with a series of reports and showed them how much they were saving and what the value was of that was going to be over a few years and how much more they were making on their, you know, AdWords account. And, and most people haven't even really defined what it means to deliver with quality and what, what will it mean to deliver at quality when you 10x the business? If you, if you suddenly had 10 times the customers, how could you possibly, you know, the, the things that you're doing inefficiently now are going to break, right? So if you're spending a half hour on the phone with a customer and kind of leisurely solving these problems and all of a sudden you have 10 times the number of customers, that process is going to break and you need to think that through beforehand or at least while you're starting to grow so you don't get, get overwhelmed. Um, and then, you know, I virtually ruined my reputation during that period of time. It, it was, um, thankfully a lot of the customers understood business and they understood what was happening, but um, that was a, that was a frightening time. So I, I tell people to think very carefully about customer service and you can, Google customer service procedures. You can go to, over to Upwork.com and hire customer service consultants and have them ask you the right questions about your business and, um, you know, think through what what policies and procedures and people you're going to put in place to make that happen. But right. um, you know, don't make the mistake of thinking that growth is everything and, you know, if there's enough growth coming in that everything's going to be okay because it's, it's really not the case. Right. True, true. Yeah, so going along with that, um, what are some of the pillars that most small businesses manage to overlook when they're trying to engineer growth or get into a growth spurt? Well, I mean, just to go back to the merchant account for a minute, um, they over they overlook the need to develop an expansion strategy with their merchant account provider. I think we talked about that a bunch, so I don't want to talk about it too much more, but it's the kind of thing like saying right. – you know what, I, I lined up these four affiliate partners and they're going to promote for me, you know, on, on the first. And we're expecting to go from 20000 to 100000 that month. Um, you know, what do you need from us to be comfortable doing that? And they might say, well, can we hold the money for a month and just make sure everything's okay or whatever. Um, but make, make sure you do that. Um, you You need to 
engineer feedback loops into your systems so that you will detect the problems before they become serious problems. I, I recently got divorced and I discovered that it's easier to clean up little messes than big messes. Um, and, and if I, right. you know, don't put, don't put it, don't put it down, put it away, that kind of thing. I, I discovered that, um, this big, disgusting mess doesn't follow me around. <laughs> and, and it's the same, it's, it's the same thing in business. If, if you engineer feedback systems and, and what that looks like is, you know, a buyer's survey that goes out automatically, someone in customer service that calls to be sure that the product arrived, um, someone who mystery shops your um, mystery shops your retail store to be sure that, um, you know, your employees aren't sitting in the smoking pot on the job and, um, you know, <laughs> making fun of the customers. Uh, I mean, all, all that kind of thing, put those feedback feedback loops in place. Uh, you'll, you'll wind up with terrific ideas for business expansion that way too, but it'll prevent serious problems as you're as you're going forward. And um, and we talked we talked about upsells, we talked about the actuarial. Yeah, I think we covered it. I think we got most of them. Yeah, yeah. And and again, I just want to circle back to upsells for one second. Is they are pretty important. Uh, you're not being pushy just by offering an upsell because you have to remember this person or this new customer of yours just said yes to investing in you. There is no better time to ask them to invest in you is when they just invested in you. Uh, they probably have not put the credit card back in their wallet or back in their purse yet. They probably are still right. logged into the PayPal account. They used to wire you the money. No better time. No better time. Now, in a, now in a separate uh, episode here, we may, some, we may talk about pre-sale upsells and post-sale upsells and cross-sells and bump offers and all the other different types of upsells. That's a completely different conversation. But if you have additional value to offer to that customer, you are actually you're slapping them in the face and disrespecting them by not letting them know how they can take a step forward that will benefit them. Let them say yes. True. Let them say no. Just ask the question. It's like... Um, it's like I mean uh, I I run into I run into you know, clients of mine sometimes who will get concerned of well I'm not going to do that because everybody hates when marketers do that so I just won't I said really uh, please give me a list of all the people with their contact information who said that they would never invest in you if you did that or that uh, or that uh, they would uh, attack you in the marketplace and you know the funny thing is it's it's just it's just like this one client I had who said um, everybody said that the email blast went out wrong and they're getting and they're getting five copies of my email. It's like okay, can you please forward some of the specific complaints to us so we can review what happened? And he said, uh, well, actually, uh, my wife got two copies of it, but it turned out she was on my list under both her email addresses. There you go. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, so right. sometimes so sometimes the point I want to make here is you know be aware of the hyperbole and uh, don't allow the other people's thoughts to become your thoughts or to dominate your thoughts. You ask the questions of your audience. You ask the questions of your prospects and let your prospects and customers tell you yes or no. Do not make decisions for them. You do not have the right to do so until you've asked the questions. Dude, I'm totally with you. It might be helpful right. for people to know. I, I've tested um, – with many of my clients and for myself, 
at what point do people start to complain? And what I found is that you uh, you can get away with two with presenting two offers after the sale. So one upsell, and then they say yes, they get an offer for another upsell. Well, then they say or they say no, and they get an offer for a downsell. Um, when you go beyond two, they start to complain. So I've, I've kind of adopted the philosophy of that means that if I don't have two additional offers that I present to people um, after the sale, that I'm leaving money on the table. And that, that's what we encourage people to do is, is work out to have those two. Yeah, I think – yeah, and we, we see that a lot uh, because, again – uh, and this is a phraseology, and everybody listening, you can take this home with you. Uh, a phrase we use for upsells is many folks who make the investment you just made or purchase what you just bought find themselves very, very soon also needing the following, ABC. So therefore, we decided to give you the opportunity to save money, get more out of your investment, whatever language is comfortable or whatever you've tested – and get it all now bundled up. We found that to be very effective because just think about it. You go to the store and you weren't bought and planning on buying 10 extra cans of soup. We figure, you know what, I'm here, so I might as well load up the pantry so I don't have to make another trip. Same principle. Yep. So that, that's, that's terrific, and that's one principle that works really well. The other things that work well is if there's something you can offer people to um, – to speed up the results they're going to get from the first product or something that you can offer them to get a lot more of the results they're going to get from the first product, like a, like a bigger result. Both of those things will work as an upsell, especially if you add a very significant discount. And usually, depends upon the margins for the product, but usually you want to um, give them like 40% of your margin to, to make that work. So that's what we find. Right. Okay. Uh, so next question, uh, let's see what we want to cover here, is uh, you know, we're, we're getting near the top of the hour, so there's one more thing I really want to cover is, uh, you know, Glenn, what is an expansion strategy, and why is this so important? I think we've kind of laid the, fu- the foundations to get us here, so tell us about that. Well, the various partners that you work with, they, the um, not only the merchant account underwriters, but your vendors and your providers and your employees, they, they're, they're going to need to be prepared for how much volume you're going to do at what point and what are they going to need to get ready in order to make sure that everything runs smoothly with that. So is there going to be enough inventory? Are you going to have enough processing power to move the, the money uh, you know, across the Internet? Um, you know, how is customer service going to manage the increased call volume and complaint volume? And, and so you really do need, I think it was, was it Peter Drucker who said that plans are worthless, but planning is priceless. Um, when you get in the field, you have to be flexible, and it's never going to match exactly what you plan. But if you think through month one, two, three, four, five, six, what are we going to do? How are we going to grow? It forces you to anticipate all the problems you're going to encounter as that happens. Um, and the companies that do that, I find, are the ones that successfully navigate the growth spurts, even though the growth spurt never looks like what they thought it was going to look like. Um, right. So, and, and with specific regard to the merchant accounts, I call them up, say you're, you're ex- expecting this kind of growth. 
maybe you want to call and get a second immersion account from a different provider just in case something happens. Um, the, the industry kind of frowns upon that. They don't really want you to do that because they feel like it's increasing their risk. But um, I feel guilty not telling people to do that because I've heard too many bad stories. The, the, um, the people that we've worked with directly to match them up with the account, we really haven't had a problem with. But I've heard stories from you know, business explosion after business explosion that got killed because of the merchant account that I, um, I usually encourage people to have a backup and to do a little bit of load balancing between them. Right. Yeah, and I, th- and I think and I think that makes uh, I think that makes a, a lot of sense, uh, especially when we talk about merchant accounts. So uh, you know, you're talking about I think I heard you say have multiple merchant accounts. Uh, is that what you said? I mean, I recommend it. I'm not supposed to recommend it. But yeah. Right. I think it's safer. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and most uh, entrepreneurs I know, and I include myself in this, have multiple merchant accounts just for that reason. And uh, you know, we and we do. You know, you use the phrase load balancing, which is a phrase that I love, by the way. Um, in terms of just running some money through one and some money through the other, just to keep them both active. Uh, just like I have credit cards, both in the business and personally, that are completely paid off. That I'll use like once every three months. Like maybe I'll, uh, you know, I'll use it to buy a meal or buy a bag of cat food or or buy a ream of paper or something like that, just to exercise the card. And then since I have it set up on automatic payments anyway, it'll be paid off in 30 days. So uh, same type of thing, just a little bit of balancing. And I also like the term load balancing when it comes to your organizational structure, because especially if we're talking about expansion, and you're going to find yourself relying on your team and relying on your people a lot more. Uh, I'm a believer in load balancing. I'm a believer in redundancy. And I'm a believer that uh, if you really want to go into expansion mode, you need to have at least two people in your organization who can handle every necessary task. What are your thoughts yep. on that? Yeah, I, you know, Dan Kennedy says one is the worst number in business, and it's interesting that you use the number two because I always wonder, well, what's the best number in business? Because I, I think three can be a bad number also because then you might be wasting resources, training people that you don't need, and diversifying your effort. So I, I, I actually came to the conclusion to aim for two people that can do every mission-critical task. Um, and, and, you know, you also want those people to document those tasks and be in charge of, you know, training other people to do those tasks so that, um, you know, so that the knowledge doesn't reside in the person, it resides in the business itself. But that's, that's a whole other, other conversation. Right. Okay. Okay. Just uh, we have a couple minutes left here, so I want to circle back to something that I wasn't sure we were going to have time for. for but, let's, uh, but let's get in since we do have the time. Um, why do you find it so difficult to move money effectively when it comes to e-commerce situations? Um, I, you know, I, I think we probably covered most of that already. It's, it, it's because the industry wants to move things in a cookie-cutter algorithmic way. They, the underwriters are mostly built to deal with tens of thousands of um, businesses that look almost exactly the same to the computer, and they, it falls within their scoring algorithm, and they know they're going to have you know X percent of those that are going to default, and they're comfortable with that risk, and that's okay. And the moment that you fall out of that narrow category, then you're the outlier that represents high risk for them. And even though you're doing 10 times what your volume was, 
if they let their algorithm um, float to do, you know, 10 times what the volume is, then, you know, it's just way too much risk for them on, on a, on a totalitarian basis, on an actuarial basis for the total, they can't let more people in like that. And so they just cut it off and say, when you go beyond there, you can't do that. Unless they know you directly and someone's made a note and they put you with a different kind of underwriter. Um, so that, that's why it's difficult. It's, right. It's not technologically. Right, certainly. I mean, it, the technology is not really that difficult. There's a lot of technology involved, and they're always finding little security holes they have to fix. Um, but but it can be um, you know financially difficult because of the risk. Right. All right. So uh, in the couple minutes we have left here, what I want to do is I want to turn the floor over to you for a moment and tell our business creators who are listening today how they can take this to the next level, how they can learn more, how they can engage with you if they find themselves interested in things like, you know, how can I more effectively manage my merchant account services? How can I save that half a point? Or how can they go deeper into the topic of tapping and leveraging some of the hidden assets that most entrepreneurs ignore in such a way that, you know, might take more than an hour, obviously, listening to somebody else's show? Well, well, the easy thing to do is just go over to merchantaccountwizard.com, merchantaccountwizard.com. And right. There's a little form there, little form there, and you can fill out and request a, um, a strategic consultation and a free rate analysis. And we, we don't charge for anything unless we sign money for you, um, and then we just make a very, very, very small percentage. So um, it's merchantaccountwizard.com. Fill out the form. Let yep. us know, you know, about what your volume is now, and we'll get in touch and we'll take it from there. Okay. All right. So uh, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and it's been an education. And as our listeners know, not only am I the host of the Business Creators Radio Show, but I put myself in the audience with our listeners with my pad of paper and my two pens looking for the slight edge in my business. And I think you've given me a couple things to go back and consider even in my own business because there's always something to learn. And by the way, a reason I recommend two pens is when you have somebody like Glenn Livingston who is giving you brilliance, you don't want your pen to run out halfway through the interview and have to rush and find <laughs> another pen and miss anything. So a little pro tip I like to hang out that people miss all the time. Um, I, I'm one of those guys, I have to buy a whole box of pens just so I know that I can probably find two. They tend to grow legs and walk away around here. It's funny. It's funny. Dude, yeah. can, you, can you call my mom and say nice things about me? I will absolutely call your mother and say nice things about you. You got it. And I'll, and I'll even, okay. I'll even uh, burn this onto a CD for it. I'll, I'll be happy to help. Okay. But uh, let me okay. just right now thank you so much for, your, um, for uh, being with us today. It's been an honor and an education. It's been an honor and an education for me too. Thank you. You bet. And for everybody listening, this is Adam Homey, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out your please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com where we help you win at the game of business and marketing. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.